Welcome to the official podcast of the Love Times 2 Project. Change the culture and the politics will follow. Here is your host, Mike Victor. Hey, welcome back to the Love Times 2 Podcast. I hope that you're enjoying the 2022 season and the additional interviews that we're adding into the mix. We have a lot of new stuff that we're planning for this year. And in fact, we have another interview that we're going to share starting with this episode. And it's an interview with Dr. Christina Francis, who's the president of a group known as the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. She's doing some really heroic work in the medical field. So Dr. Francis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Now, as the president of APLOG, you have a lot of stuff going on. I say APLOG, that's just the abbreviation for the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. A lot of folks have never heard of that before. Um, so why don't you just share a little bit about uh, what APLOG is as an organization, how many members you have, anything that you think the listeners would really find uh, informative to kind of get their bearings on the organization that you lead. Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. We say APLOG for short because our name is really long, but but uh, it's helpful to spell it out for people. So APLOG stands for the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. So it's a little bit of a mouthful, but we are a professional medical organization. We are the largest non-sectarian medical organization in the world that represents pro-life medical professionals. So even though we have obstetricians and gynecologists in our name, uh, and we started out purely as an organization of OBGYNs, we actually um, have several medical specialties represented within our organization. Uh, We also now have subsections for family medicine docs and midwives and mental health professionals. Um, along with several others. So uh, so we're a professional medical organization that exists to equip our members with the evidence-based rationale that they need to defend the pro-life position. And then our purpose in equipping them is that they can then take that information to colleagues, to patients, and into the public square in discussions with policymakers and, um, you know, just those that they come into contact with to help people understand uh, the pro-life position from a medical standpoint and that the the science clearly supports the pro-life position. And so we we represent the majority of OBGYNs. We know that about 93% of OBGYNs don't perform abortions. And so we really represent the majority, even though uh, our membership doesn't necessarily, our membership numbers do, uh, doesn't necessarily reflect that. But our membership currently stands somewhere between six and 7,000 uh, medical professionals. And uh, we're just really trying through um, podcasts like yours to get the word out there to help people know that we exist and that we can be there as a support for them. So tell us how you first became involved with APLOG, some of the steps that happened, and what led you from initial involvement to becoming the president of the organization? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I think you probably can clearly identify with this as well, that it's funny sometimes the directions that the Lord takes your life that you uh, never in a million years would have imagined him taking you. So that's kind of how I got to APLOG. You know, I grew up in in a Christian home that was pro-life. So, you know, I grew up in a in a pro-life home and always, it was never a question that we were pro-life, but didn't necessarily, um, wasn't necessarily active in that. And um, I, after finishing my residency in OBGYN, went over to Kenya um, to do medical missions and really felt like that's what the Lord had for me for the rest of my life. Never in a million years would have imagined living in the U.S. And so, 
Um, I spent my first two years in Kenya at a, at a wonderful mission hospital there and really, truly loved what I did there, loved the people, um, and, and still feel like that's where part of my heart is, actually. But, um, but I came back to the States for a planned uh, 18 months or so in the States to finish up my board certification process for OBGYN. You have to collect cases and submit a case list and do oral board exams. And so I came back to the States to do all of that. Um, my time at home got extended uh, because of my father becoming ill and, and passing away during that time. So it kind of extended my time out to two years, which, you know, I think also was all in God's plan for kind of what he had for my life. And it was during that time, actually, that uh, my best friend called me and, and she had been activated in the pro-life movement through her church, through a 40 Days for Life event. And um, and so she called me one day and she said, Christina, you're a woman and you're an OBGYN and you're a Christian and you say that you're pro-life, but I don't think that you're doing enough. And I think that you could be doing more. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, she laid it out pretty clearly. And I've often said since then that I think everybody needs someone like that in their life, you know, that's willing to speak truth, even when it might hurt just a little bit. And, you know, it did hurt in a way because I, you know, my initial response was no way, you know, I know what God has called me to do. And, and that's what I'm doing. And so anyways, that started a, a long process of kind of soul searching and learning more about um, the defense of the pro-life position and sort of what role I could play. And, and part of that process was a mutual friend of my best friend and I's um, introduced me to uh, Donna Harrison, who is was and still is uh, our CEO at, at APLOG. And so um, I got together with her. I'd never even heard of APLOG, like many OBGYNs, I think, out there. Um, you know, I practiced in a pretty friendly group, but I was probably the only one who was vocally pro-life. And um, man, to find out there was this organization of other OBGYNs and other medical professionals who not only were pro-life, but you know, had the science to back it up. I went to my first APLOG conference after meeting with Donna and Donna talking to me about, hey, would you be interested in coming on the board potentially? And um, so I went to the first uh, medical education conference that APLOG hosts every year. And I was, I've often said, you know, I kind of had low expectations, honestly. I, I kind of thought, oh, it'll be kind of a kumbaya moment of all the pro-lifers sitting around encouraging one another, you know, which would have been great in and of itself. You know, I mean, just that encouragement and that fellowship is is a huge blessing um, at our conference every year. But what I was blown away by was the level of academic presentations at the conference um, mm -hmm. and the the amount of really solid peer-reviewed um, data that I had never heard before. You know, why in my medical training had I never heard that abortion can cause an increased risk of preterm birth or, um, you know, the link between abortion and poor mental health outcomes in women? Why had I never been presented with this information? And, um, you know, so it just was really mind-blowing to me and it really just cemented that there was a need for this to be um, amplified, for this message to be amplified, and that there was a need for us to be able to reach more practicing medical professionals so that they could know that, you know, when they stand up for life, they're not just doing it on moral grounds, which we certainly are, um, but they're also doing it on medical and scientific grounds because this isn't good for our patients. And um, and so after going to that that conference the first time, that's really just what solidified it for me that, 
um, that I needed to be doing more. And uh, yeah, and so then that led to, you know, again, it was kind of a long process of coming to terms with my life looking very different than I thought that it was going to look, but uh, led to the decision to move back to the U.S. after spending another year in Kenya and uh, and then started getting getting more involved with with the pro-life movement and got involved with APOG and, and, you know, on the board and then eventually became chair of the board. You know, so much of that just starts uh, with availability. I mean, when you step out and make yourself available to God as someone that wants to be used, he will take you up on that and do some incredible things. You know, one of the things that you touched on there is that there was a time in the abortion debate where, let's just put it this way, the side that supports abortion, those who were very supportive advocating for abortion, seemed to have the high ground, at least they claimed to have the high ground, because not as much was known about the development of unborn children in the womb. But now you fast forward to 2022, and we know more about life in the womb than at any other time in human history. I mean, the humanity of the unborn child is so clear to see. That makes it critical for health professionals, uh, for people with the scientific backgrounds, uh, just to continue to come forward and uh, secure that high ground on this entire debate. We're talking about the humanity of an unborn child. Now, for those who might be listening who are health professionals. They've stumbled across that podcast. They're hearing for the first time about APLOG and wondering how they might get involved. Uh, What do you say to them? Absolutely. Well, and, you know, and I hope that there are people in the medical profession, whether you be a physician or a nurse or a physician assistant that are listening to this, because I think for so many people, they feel so alone and isolated, you know, certainly depending on where they're practicing. Um, But it can be very lonely. And, you know, especially in this current uh, you know, I hate using the phrase, but it really is what it is. You know, this current cancel culture that we're in, unfortunately, that has permeated medicine as well. And so, you know, I think a lot of people really feel like they need to be silent um, in order to sort of go along to get along. But, um, but I think it's an encouragement to people to know that they're not alone. And APLOG is there for you, not only to provide you with the data that you need to back up your position, but also to defend your right to practice pro-life medicine. Um, And so I would encourage people to check out our website. You can sign up for our updates for free. Um, our, we send out updates twice a month and with really important information, or you can join as a dues-paying member. And that website is aaplog.org uh, or aplog.org. And you can go to the website. You can see the practice bulletins, the practice guidelines um, that we have put out to help inform your practice of medicine. And again, you can join there with us uh, to, to join this fight and to know that, that you're not alone in it. One of the key deliverables of APLOG, I think, from my perspective on it, is that any health professional anywhere in the nation can get involved with this. And that's really key because you may be a health professional who you're practicing in a state or a community that might be hostile towards the sanctity of life, for example, and you really don't know uh, how to plug in or where to plug in. There are no local pro-life groups, for example, or nothing that you can really get involved with. But this gives you an opportunity to plug in 
into something at a, at a much higher level and have that, um, you know, have those colleagues in the medical profession that you are joining in making this strong stand for life. Now, we're going to switch gears here just a little bit. The FDA has made some significant changes in how uh, chemical abortions are administered or can be administered, I guess I should say, in the United States. But before we go there, there's no doubt that we have some listeners who are completely unfamiliar with what a chemical, some may call it a medical abortion, uh, they don't understand that process. They Maybe they've never heard about that process before, even though it is now uh, the majority type procedure used for abortions in the United States. That was just recently reported by the Guttmacher Institute. What is a chemical abortion? Sure. So um, you're right. This is really the, it's been around since 2000, but it really is the next frontier for the abortion industry. We've seen it increasing in, in frequency, uh, you know, throughout the country. In fact, in, in Indiana, where you and I both live, you know, just this past year, it outpaced surgical abortions. Um, and we're seeing that really across the country as uh, women are being told that this is an easier option for them than a surgical abortion. And so what it is, is it's a combination of two different medications. Uh, the first one is called mifepristone, or people might have heard of it referred to as mifeprex or RU486. And the second medication is one called mesoprostol. Prior to December of this past year, um, a woman had to receive that first medication in the presence of a certified prescriber, either a physician or a nurse practitioner um, who had been certified to dispense this medication. And part of that uh, was so that she could have adequate counseling before she received this medication so that she could um, have an ultrasound to document that the pregnancy was inside of her uterus and also how far along it was. Um, and to have, you know, appropriate blood tests and things like that done. So the first medication would be given to her in the clinic setting. And that medication actually binds to receptors on cells in the uterus and in the ovaries to block the action of progesterone, which is a naturally occurring hormone that's very crucial early in pregnancy to allow for the adequate development of the placenta, which essentially then allows for good flow of oxygen and nutrients to that developing baby. And so Mifeprex, when it binds to those receptors and blocks the action of progesterone, what it does is it essentially leads to starvation of that developing baby and leads to the death of that baby about 75 to 80% of the time. And then 24 to 48 hours later, the woman takes the, the second medication, mesoprostol. What that does is it induces uh, uterine contractions, uh, which are very painful, leads to labor pains, essentially, um, and then leads to her expelling uh, the baby and uh, other pregnancy tissues. So this is this is what we mean when we say chemical abortion or medication abortion. I think it's an important point to make that this is not the same thing as plan B or the morning after pill. Not that those can't be abortifacients, but when we're talking about chemical abortions specifically, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this two-drug combination. What are the dangers involved with this two-drug process? Yeah, absolutely. So it's important for people to know, even though these are being sold to women as easy, they're being told um, per accounts that we're hearing from women that this is safer than taking Tylenol. Um, these actually have a four times higher complication rate than do surgical abortions. And the main complications that we see with these medications are hemorrhage or very heavy bleeding. 
that could require blood transfusions, uh, infection, so that women can get infections from a couple different places. One, if they don't pass all of the baby or all of the tissue and there's tissue retained, that can lead to an infection. But also both of these medications actually have a suppressive effect on the woman's immune system and make her more susceptible to infection, specifically from certain kinds of bacteria. Um, and then the other thing that we see is an incomplete abortion, meaning she doesn't pass all of the baby or all of the tissue. We know that about one in five women who take these medications will have some kind of significant adverse event, you know, whether it be, like I said, hemorrhage or infection or an incomplete abortion. And about 8% of women will need uh, surgery to complete their abortions. And oftentimes these will be uh, need to be somewhat urgent or emergent surgeries uh, because of the amount of bleeding that they're having. And so, you know, to the listeners, 8% may not sound like a significant number of women, but if we take under consideration that in the U.S. we have about 900,000 abortions a year and medication abortions represent somewhere between 40 to 50% of those, so let's just kind of lowball that, we'll say about 400,000 women, if you look at what 8% of that would be, that's going to be just under 40,000 women a year that are going to need emergent surgery. So these are not small numbers of women that we're talking about. And women, are again, are not being told about these risks. This next question may be a really a life-saving question, and it's this. If in the chemical abortion process, if a woman has already taken the first drug and then regrets her decision, is there a possibility that that abortion can be reversed and that baby's life can be saved? It can. There's a chance that it could be. Absolutely. It's a great question. It's something that I think everyone needs to know about because we're all going to have women in our lives who might make this choice. And many women make it because they feel like they have no other choice. But what I've heard from my own patients, as well as other women that I've talked to, is that many women, after they take that first pill, immediately realize that they shouldn't have done it. Mm -hmm. And so thankfully, there is something called APR or abortion pill reversal that can be done to try to save that baby. Um, and so if a woman calls, there's a there's a hotline that, that they can call 24-7. Uh, and if she calls prior to taking that second medication, then she may be able to start the, the APR process to try to save her baby. And what that involves is uh, basically just giving her high doses of, of natural progesterone to combat the effects of that first drug, that Mifeprex. Um, and this has been shown actually to be successful um, in animal studies as well as in the manufacturer's own studies when this drug was being developed. It also has been shown to be successful about 70% of the time um, through a large case series study or a large basically collection of women who attempted this from the time that it was started in 2011. It's been shown with just oral replacement. So taking progesterone by mouth through the first trimester, about 70% of the time we can save that preborn baby and we can save um, that mom the heartache of, of losing a child that she desires to save. Hey, we're going to wrap up part one of this discussion right here, but we have some very interesting stuff coming up in part two, including some major changes that the FDA has just made in the way abortion drugs are distributed in the United States. You are not going to want to miss part two of this discussion. Hey, that's it for this episode of the Love Times 2 podcast. Never forget, change the culture and the politics will follow. Thanks for listening to the official podcast of the Love Times 2 Project. 
Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And never forget, change the culture and the politics will follow.